Welcome to Mission Daily. Today, Chad sits down with Armand Dadger, co-founder and chief technology officer of HashiCorp, a San Francisco-based company that builds open source tools to solve the challenges of cloud computing infrastructures, allowing organizations such as AWS, Google, and Oracle to focus on business-critical tasks. Armand's career has been like a shooting star. He founded HashiCorp two years after graduating college and at the age of 25 was named to the prestigious Forbes 30 Under 30 list. As a leader of the company, he spends his time uplifting the individuals within his organization, as he understands a successful company is as much about people as it is about technology. Because of this philosophy and his drive, in just six short years, he has led HashiCorp to a valuation of $2 billion. On this episode of Mission Daily, Armand discusses how his role with HashiCorp has evolved from being a coder and programmer to now serving as CTO how he keeps up with the ever-changing, fast-paced world of IT, and how to balance work life with personal growth. Mission Daily is created by our team at mission.org. Armin, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's great to have you here. Uh, you just came down from San Francisco, right? Yes. What, yeah. what were you up to today, or what brought you down, other than this interview? <laughs> um, so actually, I, I live in Connecticut, so I come out to San Francisco, which is where HQ is, at least once or twice a month. You know, this week is a we had onboarding, so we onboarded about seventy-two new folks yesterday. We have uh, some leadership offsites and some, a lot of people, uh, some some executive meetings. Very cool. So for your leadership offsites and exec meetings, if you don't mind, what's that flow like, and how do you structure those? Yeah, so the leadership offsites are relatively new for us. Maybe over the, only in the last year or two we started them. Uh, and every quarter, what we try and do is get together the entire sort of executive team uh, and spend two days together sort of locked away in a very unglamorous conference room. And it's sort of going through a bit of the state of the state, right? Like what's going well? What are the challenge areas? Where are the places where we really need to uh, double down and invest more? And it's, you know, one of these things where it's like each of our sort of functional groups, whether it's sales, marketing, customer success, engineering, runs independently. And this is sort of the once a quarter where you get all of those executives in a room to say, okay, how do we look across our functions in terms of what's going well, what's not going well? And sure. Is it uh, painful, exciting, exhilarating, or how would you describe that? Because it seems like you know people are emerging from those uh, their respective caves. And <laughs> what's the feedback like? You know, uh, <laughs> I, I wish it was more of any of those adjectives they used. <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> in some sense, I describe them as more mundane. Okay. Gotcha. Um, you know, well, which is a good the, thing in, in business, the best so, right? possible way. Yeah, it's yeah. Like if we got there and it was surprising, I'd say it's a really bad sign. It's like uh, surprises are sort of the worst possible yes. thing when it comes yeah. to business. So, luckily, they're mostly mundane, um, and it ends up being you know just a time to collaborate in terms of understanding each other's problems, build empathy, and say, hey, maybe I need to give us some headcount because you need to invest sure. more in your functional area or or whatnot. So, I think it's it tends to be very collaborative. Uh, relatively boring in a good way, <laughs> uh, but I think always exciting as well, right? Because it's it's one of those rare opportunities where it's like you get everyone together and you reflect, hey, what did we do last quarter, last six sure. months? And when you have that opportunity to step up and be like, oh, wow, holy cow, we've done a lot in the last six months. Yeah, <laughs> I, it's so easy for us to forget what we did when we're doing so many different things or when we get to a place you know, where we're having like 150 or 180 messages or emails a day, you kind of forget what you accomplished when you're in that minutia. So What's your process like for reflecting on that and kind of like setting uh, professional goals for yourself every quarter or every year? Yeah, it's a good uh, it's a good question and honestly something uh, we need to be better at. You know, I think you know, and you sort of understand this as someone who's sort of uh, you know so closely involved to running a business. 
you tend to over pivot your thinking on what's going wrong, right? Or what's true could be going better, right? So it's like you don't spend a lot of mental cycles on what are the things that went well, right? Like what were the successes? You're like, okay, those are in our past. What are the things in the future? What do we need to solve for? Right. And so I think it's important for us, you know, every quarter what we try and do is both for the sake of the company, right? We do an all hands where we sort of talk about, hey, you know, what what was the sort of quarter in retro? That ends up being a good checkpoint for us to sort of reflect and say, okay, we have 30 to 45 minutes to talk with the whole company about, you know, the last quarter and sort of the forward looking quarter. And that's a good checkpoint for us to reflect on, you know, what do you want to highlight? What do you really want to sort of use as the as sort of get the company excited, but also sure. keep things grounded and where do we need to focus on? Sure. Um, so, I mean, as CTO and you're doing many, many different things, you're overseeing research and development, I think, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, many different things. I'd be curious to know, because you're looking at things that maybe aren't going to come into play for like another three years or four years, does that ever get challenging for you where you're, you know, at the quarterly meetings, you're, there's probably a bunch of big ideas and things that you want to share how do you balance sharing a little bit of that, but then staying focused with like, here's what happened in this quarter and here's what we're doing next quarter. And how do you kind of avoid bringing in like the three year, four year and hundred year visions? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in some sense, it's incredibly frustrating, right? Because right. you wish you could accelerate <laughs> time. Yeah. Um, so I think there's sort of two aspects to it. One is if you look at the evolution of my role and my co-founder's role over the last few years, it's changed quite a bit, right? We went from, you know, the co-founders who also ran the company as CEO to, Relatively early on, maybe two, three years into the company, uh, we brought in an external CEO. And so we sort of stepped aside from sort of that function into more of the sort of chief technical role. From there, though, flash forward another 12, 18 months, and we actually brought in a VP of product management and a VP of engineering, right? Who sort of run the day-to-day of the product organization. Sure. And I think really our goal was how do we have it so that me and Mitchell, my other co-founder, can work on the company but not in the company, Right. And that's sure. sort of a distinction we like to make is it's so difficult with a company that's growing this rapidly and, you know, with the amount that's going on that if you're in the company, you don't have the right level of perspective. Right. Definitely, you can't yeah. step back. Yeah. And so I think what's been nice is because, you know, we have a great executive team and, you know, they do a, a wonderful job running the business. It gives me and Mitchell a bit of that time to say, OK, what's happening in the market over the next 18 months, you know, three years that's sure. going to affect us? How do we either invest in the right product things now, right? Or what do we need to change from our go-to-market to to lean into that, et cetera? Um, So it's, in some sense, is it frustrating a little bit? Yes, that it's like, okay, I know it's going to take 12, 18 plus months for some of this stuff to pan out. True, but I think what's fun is also you got to see the sort of the the day-to-day operation of the business working and solving customer problems today. Right. Without kind of knowing that you can talk to the problems of the future. Definitely. And I'm sure it's inspiring too, knowing that, you know, you don't have to devote all your time to the things that you're not so good at, right? Because the origins of this business, it's not just like you had one insight. It's probably a collection of dozens, maybe hundreds or thousands of conversations that went into this. So would you say your role now is more similar to what it was in the founding of the business where you're trying to get like customer feedback and iterate the product and I had almost say uh, it, it's almost polar opposite. Okay, wow. Yeah, <laughs> I joke that I feel like every six months, my I have to rediscover what my job is. Gotcha. Because right? the company <laughs> changes so much. But you know, if I look at the early days, right, me and Mitchell were sort of you know both technical founders, and we were you know in the trenches writing the product. Sure. Right? So yeah. the first first two three years, it's like my day to day looked like you know writing code, 
six to 10 hours a day, right? right. Like that was the bulk of it was either alternating between writing code and hiring people to write more code. Sure. <laughs> and now it's almost sort of the total opposite. I probably haven't written a line of code in two or three years. Wow. And so most of my time is much more outbound, whether it's with our you know, customers, whether it's with prospects, whether it's with our you know, major cloud partners or right. technology partners. So I spent a lot more time on the outbound side, a lot more time with the management team in terms of, hey, how do we think about you know, culture and process and hiring and, you know, future investments. So, you know, I'd say it's a totally radically different role than what it used to be when I started. Yeah. I mean, it seems like it after hearing you describe it. Uh, Also, I'd be curious to know. So as you're building this company, uh, I think what you and your co-founder chose to do is uh, very interesting where you step back and had a CEO come in and then the VP of product and VP of engineering. Uh, What led you to make that call? Because it was pretty early on in the company (laughs) that you chose to do that. So it's, uh, yeah, I, I, maybe I'll back up a little bit and give you a, sure. a bit of a, a longer story, which is, you know, when we founded the company, I think we had a really strong vision for what the product portfolio should be. We knew from the get-go, hey, these are these six to eight products we know need to be built and open source. And so we told our investors, you know, that's what we're going to do. Next two, three years, we're just going to focus on building out the, the sort of tooling, not a huge focus on the commercialization of the business. And our investors sort of understood that. And so we did that. We spent two, three years just building open source tools, not really focused on that. And this is post-Series A? To this try is post-Series A, exactly. Okay, gotcha. yeah. So yeah. this was right in 2014, we did our Series A. And then there was sort of a you know, two-year build after that where we were just focused on, on the tools. You know, you know, true to their word in some sense, up until one week after you know, we launched the last piece of the products, the investors didn't bother us. The following week, the email came in saying, okay, great, you've built all the tools, you know, tell us what the business is now, right? <laughs> and that kicked off this um, pretty long soul search, right? Which was, what's the nature of the business, right? When HashiCorp grows up, are we a SMB oriented sort of SaaS technology company? Right. Are we a sort of classic enterprise, sort of global 2000 focused uh, technology company. And those were, you know, at the time we viewed them as like, you know, maybe not a, a dichotomy, right? It's like, why not both? Why can't we sell to both? And I think the more time we spent sort of understanding the go-to-market of how do you actually sell to these different groups, you realize that they're radically different, right? Right. Like everything about them, the way you market, the way you sell, the way you sort of do pricing and packaging, the whole nine yards. And so as part of that soul search where we ultimately landed was saying, okay, if you look at you know, infrastructure companies that sell to SMB, who's successful there, right? And it's sort of a graveyard. (laughs) (laughs) Completely, right? Yeah, You don't see a whole lot. Versus if you look at the ones that are enterprise, you just drive up and down the 101 or the 280 and it's everyone. To have a chance at surviving, like you have to cater to the enterprise or you have to have some large customer that's going to be able to keep it going. Right, 80% of spend in IT. Yeah. So, you know, I think when we said, hey, this is our focus area, we want to be sort of an enterprise company when we grow up, the sort of last second question for us was, okay, but who leads the company to right. do that, right? And it's sort of me and my you know, co-founder, both were technologists, both had been sort of in operator roles in past lives, sort of in you know, either operations or application development. Neither of us had led a enterprise go-to-market before, <laughs> sure. right? Yeah. And so it was clear we needed to bring in someone who had that expertise. You know, I think the choice for us was very much, hey, we can either learn this as CEOs ourselves and learn through a thousand paper cuts, mm-hmm. or we can go ahead and bring someone in who's done this before, who has that experience right. and won't learn through a thousand paper cuts. Right. <laughs> and in, in an industry like software too, that's so important because just like we were talking about, like the product, as soon as it gets to market, it needs to start 
need to be shipping the next version. So, and it, you know, and I think there's this common fallacy, especially among engineers, which is like build it and they will come. And it's just not true at all. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like you have to, your marketing and your sales and your whole sort of customer experience is just as important as the product. Definitely. And if you don't have someone who's an expert at that, you're going to try and reinvent the wheel and probably do a bad job. Sure. Would you say that that process led you to kind of like discovering or rediscovering the enterprise and how complex these huge corporations are? You know, yeah, we had some early experiences, uh, you know, and I won't name sort of the company names, but, you know, early before we brought in a CEO, we had a few companies reach out to us and be like, hey, we love this product or that product. We'd love to do either, you know, commercial support with you or get a site license or whatever. And, you know, we're like, great, this is awesome. You know, enterprise customers is going to be a huge deal. Definitely. And we sort of would engage with them and then just realize how painful that process is. <laughs> right. Just getting through their procurement, you know. And each of, one has a different process, right? It's, different process. Yeah. And it's like it's like walking on glass each time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you really are, because sometimes I can remember times where the one day I had, I think I talked with seven or eight different people in the accounts payable department. And it was like the next day I was talking to five new people and like it just keeps going. But uh, once you are able to figure out how those enterprises work and work with them successfully, it gets really exciting, right? Like you do have to invest that amount into the learning. But um, what was the first big enterprise customer that you like to cite as like, this is just an amazing case of like, you know, a great partnership, uh, great customer success story, you know, all that. Hmm. Uh, probably Barclays Bank for us. Okay, so cool. they were one of the first customers to make a big bet on one of our products called Terraform. And, you know, I think they, you know, specifically the group who's buying from us, they really understood, hey, we know you're a small, immature tech company. We know we're going to put you through the grinder of our right. procurement <laughs> and legal process. Like, we know the product's not mature enough to, to sort of handle our scale and, and what we want to do. But that's okay. We want to partner with you. We're making a bet on this technology. We're making this a bet on this team. And we want to help co-evolve the product. Sure. And so I think they came in with really clear eyes on, you know, what this would look like, right? They had no illusion that they're buying from a big tech company and that this would be, you know, they're going to get a mature product, right? It's like, sure, yeah. And so I think they worked super closely with us on helping kind of nudge things through their procurement process and sort of, you know, look past some of the things that, uh, you know, small companies, you know, you're not going to have the same sort of things that a large company does. Sure. And if you try to get your, you know, the second you start getting into like master service agreement territory, it's so complex that like you need to have, you need to make sure everything's perfect. So Armin, I'd be curious to know as you're building that deal and as you're maybe selling Terraform, how do you pitch Terraform? So if I understand it correctly, it's uh, almost like a product that allows you to use all of your other cloud products more effectively or automate the use of them, or how do you describe it and sell it? Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good way to think about it at a high level, which is you know the way we like to describe it is anything that you might cr- manage, any type of infrastructure you know you might create or sort of there's a life cycle associated with it. There's sort of multiple ways to go about it, right? Sure. I the most classic way would be what I call sort of totally manual, right? You might log into a web portal, you know, push a button and say, okay, I want a new server. I'm going to configure it by hand and go through sort of a visual interface to say, you know, next, 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 I want these options, go and kind of create that thing in sort of a one-off basis. Sure. That's sort of predominantly how most of IT does it today, right? It's sort of this classic, heavily manual driven approach. Now, the problem with that is that's fine if I want one server or if I want two servers. But if I'm a large enterprise that measures it in thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of servers, it's an approach that doesn't scale particularly well either right. from sort of a time to market, right? If yeah. I ask my IT team, hey, create a thousand servers and they're going to do it by hand, it's going to take a while, sure. right? Like the pager duty is going to go out and then what, 24 hours later, you might have 
Right, exactly. Yeah. Right, it's just a very slow process, right? Because you're sort of operating at human speed, not sure. at machine speed, right? And I think the other thing you end up with is it's error prone, right? Because you're having people do it manually, they might miss a checkbox here or there, right? right? So it's not that those thousand are identical. It's that, yeah, maybe you have 50 that are identical, but now you have 20 different sets of 50 that are all slightly different that right. you have to deal yeah. with, right? And so I think when you talk about a tool like Terraform, the goal is how do I define a template or a blueprint of what I want my infrastructure to look like? Define that once, and then I can stamp out one copy or you know 50,000 copies right. in an automated way. Right? It doesn't matter. So Terraform, basically, it will just spin up and then shut down servers at will based on whatever parameters you set? Or Exactly. Very exactly. Cool. Yeah. Right. And that's, uh, I mean, that seems like it would be really, really exciting for companies of all sizes, but what's like the sweet spot? Where do you find companies... Um, maybe coming across Terraform like through Google searches mm -hmm. or what's that discovery process like? Yeah, you know, it's an interesting question, which is, you know, I think where a tool like Terraform starts actually is with small users, right? It's people with, you know, a handful of servers that they're managing. And I think for them, it's really about how do I automate it from the get-go? Because I understand time to market is important for me. Sure. You know, I'm a startup. I'm trying to compete with a big incumbent. And so oftentimes it's the startups that do it really well. But when you think about the value of automation, you know, it's sort of exponential with the size of your resources, right? Like if I have five servers to manage, sure, yeah, automation is useful and helpful, but not nearly as useful as when I have 50,000. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. Right, so, you know, it's funny because even though I think the value is sort of disproportionately in the kind of global 2000, it doesn't necessarily start there because they are the incumbent. Right, Right. Like yeah. they don't feel the threat of competition. They're not trying to compete with an upstart, right? Like they are the, uh, they are the incumbent. Sure. And so I think it starts with these little guys starting to compete, trying to be more innovative, get to market faster, that ultimately puts pressure on the larger incumbents to say, okay, we have to keep pace, right? Otherwise, you know, we don't want to be Gillette and Dollar Shave Club shows. Definitely, up, yeah. Right? And I mean, engineers exchange information so fast too that I would imagine that it's like, that's probably your best marketing tool or how would you describe, you know, engineers talking about your product? Yeah, so I mean, I think at the core of what HashiCorp does, almost everything is open source for us. And so in terms of sort of traditional marketing, we do very little of it. It's very much driven around, let's create great products, put it in open source and make it broadly available to developers and users. And then we do developer advocacy that's really focused on education, right? It's like, how do we go educate that, hey, if you have this shape of problem, right, you're mm -hmm. manually managing infrastructure, then great, here's a tool that lets you automate that and, you know, both make your job easier as well as eliminate sort of errors and mistakes. And then to your point, it just... It's a very viral type of effect, right? It's developers telling their other developer friends like, oh, wow, Save you're doing time. things by hand? Like, that's crazy. <laughs> Take a look at Terraform. Yeah, that's really exciting. So Terraform is one product of many in your suite. Um, would you mind talking about some of the others and uh, diving into them? Sure, yeah. I mean, I, I think at a broad level, there's kind of four major products we talk about and go to market with. Uh, one is Terraform, which we already talked about. Uh, the next one is Vault, which is really security oriented. And it looks at sort of the problem of as we go from our private on-premise data centers into cloud, we sort of lose control of the physical perimeter. And what I mean by that is the, the old data center, you had quite literally four walls and a front door. Right. <laughs> right. So your security model was based on this physical reality, right? You said, okay, great. There's one cable where, you know, traffic comes in and out of my data center. And so if I tightly control that and I can put firewalls at my front door, then I can sort of understand the traffic and control everything. And as I go to cloud, there is no four walls. There is no front door. There's not the one cable that you can point to that says this is where the internet is sure, connected, yeah. right? And so I think the whole notion of security changes towards this notion that I can't actually trust my network. I have to assume that an attacker will sort of find a way on because I don't tightly control the perimeter anymore, right? right? And so I think the idea behind Vault is how do I get 
sort of much more sophisticated in terms of how do I protect my applications, my actual infrastructure, the underlying servers, as well as data, right? So how do I encrypt data before I store it in S3, right? You kind of see news story after news story of, oops, right. you know, <laughs> data left on public internet and someone downloads social securities or bank account numbers or et cetera because the data wasn't encrypted and someone just put it in, sure. in a cloud service, right? So that's what Vault looks at is how do I provide a comprehensive sort of toolkit around different sort of security challenges operating in the cloud. Then we have our console product, which really looks at sort of a modern networking challenge, right? Historically, you would have said, great, I'm going to go buy a bunch of Cisco gear and Juniper gear and sort of rack and stack it in my data center and sort of wire everything together, you know, quite literally. Right. Uh, and that would be my underlying network. When you talk about it in a cloud environment, you don't control the network, right? Amazon, Google, Microsoft, they give you a, a logical network, but you're not going to buy hardware and ship it up to them. Right. <laughs> and so the whole notion of networking sort of shifts away from, hey, buy a bunch of hardware and manage this hardware into, you know, the problem still exists, but now it's a logical problem you have to solve with software, right? How does my web server find my database? How does my API server discover and, you know, securely connect to my web services? And so what console does is say, here's a toolkit of solving these classic networking challenges of how do things connect to one another? How do you automate the network? How do you secure which services are allowed to talk to what? But do it in a multi-cloud reality where you say some stuff's in the cloud, stuff, stuff, some things are on-premise. Maybe I have multiple cloud providers, Google and Amazon and right. Azure. So it kind of sits in the networking bucket. And then the final tool for us is Nomad, which really looks at my final sort of a user internally is the developer. How do they easily deploy their application, deploy their containers, whether it's on-premise, whether it's in the cloud, right? We want a common workflow for all of sure. that. So that's kind of the four to core tools for us. Very cool. And when you have, when you're talking about that product suite and you're looking at or thinking about the Global 2000, uh, do they need, would you say like 95% need all four tools, 100%, um, which obviously, you know, you're biased, I'm biased in, in our own ways, but uh, what's your take on how many of the Global 2000 need your products? So, you know, I think this is genuinely the fun part of getting to work in sort of infrastructure space is just the how horizontal it is, right. right? Like we're not selling something that like, oh, here's a specific app for, you know, banking customers, right? Like it's so generic in terms of what we're helping you do is manage underlying infrastructure, whether you're, you know, a hospital and insurer, whether you're in oil and gas, whether you're in, you know, finance, right? High tech, it's media company, et cetera. And so it's funny because it's like, I look at a cross profile of customers I talk to on a weekly basis. And there's no rhyme or reason. It's every single industry, right? It's all the ones I named and more because technology exists in all of them, right? Like find me a modern, you know, global 2000 sure. business yeah. that isn't powered by technology. Yeah. And roughly 10% of businesses are converted to the cloud now. So it's, it seems like it's the perfect opportunity where you're going to need both for a long time. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Right. And what does that transition look like in your mind? Are there any big, you know, milestones or technology shifts that you see in the next like five to 10 years that you're excited about? You know, it's a good question. I think when we talk about cloud, in some sense, it feels like we've been working on it a long time, right? I think it's sort of started with Amazon in 2006 and seven, launching AWS. So we're, depending on how you want to measure, we're 10 plus years into it. But at the same time, you go and talk to some of these large organizations and you realize we're still at such at the beginning, right? The, a lot of these big companies, while they might have been talking about cloud for two, three years, the reality is they're at one to 3% of their workload running in the cloud, right? Wow. Yeah. So they have another 97% to go. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. And so, you know, even if you say, hey, we're going to move at this ridiculous pace of moving 10 to 20% of these applications, which in some of these organizations who have 5,000 apps, you might be talking about 500 to 1,000 apps a year trying to move to cloud, right? Sure. So that's an enormous project. And even at that pace, you'd say, okay, well, it's still going to take you 10 more years <laughs> to get there. 
Yeah. Right. Even at 500 applications a year, which is crazy. So, you know, I think over the next few years, we're still not even at that critical tipping point of saying we're at 50%. Right. right. Uh, so I think that's kind of the fun part is still at that early phase of customer education, getting people sort of to understand what's the you know, process and journey look like? How do you get to cloud? And, and sort of getting to partner with them as they as they do that. I'm curious to know when you're building this business now and when you're talking to your co-founders and CEO and board and every everything, how are you thinking about fundraising? Many people are thinking about, you know, staying private longer. They're thinking about IPOs, direct listings, mm-hmm. ICOs. There's so many different options. What's your take on all of them and what are, what's your team thinking about that you can share? Yeah, it's a good question. So maybe just a quick bit of background, like sure. what we've done so far. You know, most recently we did our Series D fund financing last year, sort of September-ish. And so that brought us sort of to a total fundraise of about $174 million so far. So as I think about kind of like where we are uh, in terms of sort of just our phasing, we're about 650, 700 people today. You know, having raised $175 million, we're in sort of this comfortable place where it's like we don't need to fundraise, but you kind of look at the, the sort of future horizon. And, you know, Series D company, we're, we're sort of a large, mature business at this point. So you kind of look and say, okay, well, the next logical step is really becoming a public business. Sure. Right? Like you're kind of at that point. Right. So will there be a fundraising between now and then? Possibly, right? I think the market continues to be super hot. Valuations for right. private tech companies are still very high. At the same time, I think the risk is you look at, you know, companies like, you know, Uber, Lyft, you know, some of the more recent IPOs where, you know, they might now be trading at below IPO price. So there is sort of a, you know, a danger of, you know, you want to have enough capital that you never feel constrained in terms of your investments and, and you, know, you know, what you're trying to do in the day to day of the business. But at the same time, you don't want to overshoot and, and have so much cash that you can't put it to productive use or you overset your valuation sure. and then yeah. sort of disappointing when you're in the public market. Definitely. And um, especially, too, I think it's probably tempting for a team like yours that's, uh, you know, technical to get wrapped up in thinking things are happening faster than they are. Because I know a lot of people I talk to, and myself included, sometimes we forget we're, we're in these bubbles and we don't go outside them and realize, wait a minute, like it's not happening as fast as I think. Um, do you ever find yourself kind of remembering that, you know, to slow down or do you find yourself speeding up all the time? You know, it's funny. And I think, um, you know, the nature of the market we're in, which is, you know, specifically kind of this cloud one is the market just is moving at a breakneck speed, right? If you look at those that way, sometimes, yeah. and sometimes it's like, well, it's, Nobody's going to get it <laughs> or it's happening <laughs> yeah, it's, too slow. It's sort of both of these things, right? Which is, you know, I think the, where, where the numbers don't lie is you look at the quarterly results that Amazon and Microsoft post and you look at that and say, okay, you know, Azure revenue is growing at, you know, 80 to 100% year over year, right? Amazon is growing at 40 to 60% on an incredible baseline of, you know, tens of billions. And so when you're seeing those compound annual growth rates, right? In a market that's already a tens of billion dollar market, it that's gives you a astounding. sense of just how fast this market is moving yeah. and how big the market is. Right? It's not a million dollar market moving at 100% year over year. It's a $20 billion market moving at 100% year over year. So this is kind of a, a high concept question, but just yeah, bear with me here. You don't have to answer it if you don't want to. Um, I'm curious to know, what's your take on so many companies like yours and other companies that are US-based now have the opportunity to be first movers in these like brand new markets and massive trillion dollar markets, um, whether it's IT spending or cloud or however you define them, right? And it's really like an unprecedented opportunity. However, there's a lot of talk now about uh, anti-trade and what companies a monopoly and what's not. Is there a right size for companies that you feel that like after a certain point they shouldn't grow larger? Is it, you know, is it a bit larger than we're at right now? Should it be like a couple trillion dollars in market cap um, before we get the 
regulators on them. What's your take on all this? That's a super tough question. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, super, super tough. You know, I think, you know, my, my personal view is, you know, there is a risk in too much bigness, right? Definitely. Bigness yeah. in anything uh, Fragile you know, is, or, a, is a problem, right? Yeah. You have too much systemic risk in a few companies. Sure. But more than that, you have this sort of interplay of, you know, your sort of market power translates into political power. And the political power sort of reinforces market power, right? right? And I think that that becomes a dangerous dynamic because it it sort of destroys competitiveness, right? Yeah. And I think it's interesting because you look at Silicon Valley and it prides itself on being disruptive, being innovative. But really, if you sort of said, okay, what's the power tale of companies that exist here? There's five companies that represent, what, 95% of the value yep. of the valley? Yep. And I think the risk is that just has this sort of chilling effect. And you see it all the time. You talk to the venture community where you say, hey, would you invest in this space? And they're like, no way, because you'd be going up against these incumbents that basically have monopolistic power uh, in some of these domains. Sure. And it's hopeless. Yeah. And I think what's interesting, too, is I think that mindset is... Um, investors are displaying it earlier and earlier in different mm -hmm. categories, which is kind of troubling. But it brings us to this ter uh, territory of kind of like frontier technology, where there are perhaps many new markets that um, we haven't even broken into yet. So I'm curious when you're uh, you know reading sci-fi or when you're you know taking a break and thinking big about the future, are there any technologies that you're like that are so out there that you're like worried to talk about or that you're like, you know, that you think they might be a scam, but maybe there's some hope there. Maybe they'll be legit. Is it quantum computing? Like, what is it? I guess there's a, there's the cynical side of me looks at certain technologies like, you know, kind of the crypto space. And cynically, I look at it and say, it seems to be more con men than it is people trying to really uh, truly add value and, and sort of disrupt things in a Which positive is a true way. statement. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's sort of unfortunate because I think there, yeah. was a, there was a glimmer of hope there. Sure. And yeah. I think it's, you know, not turned out to be the case in many, yeah. many, uh, many places. At the same time, I think optimistically looking ahead, you know, I think what's been amazing is you look at the democratizing power of things like smartphones and the fact that you basically have a supercomputer now in every person's pocket around the world right. and looking at adding a billion more yeah. over the next 10 years. I think that still creates a, such an incredible opportunity to say, how do you improve people's quality of life? And I think, you know, part of, I think, a bad thing that we do in Silicon Valley is over pivot on sort of the first world problems, it's true. which is like, you know, do I really need an app to call me a dog walker <laughs> and also bring me a pizza? Yeah. Maybe, you know, yeah. but it's not, you get, know, my get life. Get a customized lunch for the team. Yeah. yeah it's like, you know, I'm my life up. won't be dramatically improved versus, you know, you look at some of these sort of third world environments where there's a lot you can do to dramatically improve people's quality of life. Right. And whether it's mobile banking or just clean you know, water, clean water, yeah, yeah. basic yeah. education around healthcare, right? Things yeah. like that where a huge amount of value to be done, you know, and I think those are some really optimistic, interesting places that is boring tech, right? It's cellular service and, right. you know, smartphones being cheap, right? It, it's not yeah. quantum and Bitcoin. and Not a lot kind of, of uh, luxury tech out there, but uh, survival tech though is uh, it's the market of the future, right? Like right. improve the basics. Um, that's, yeah, in a, in a sense, Silicon Valley's kind of forgot that. Armin, what are you reading, listening to, watching, or thinking about these days? So, you know, I, I'm sure we all feel like the, the news cycle has accelerated to, to sort of a psychotic point. Yes, yeah, definitely. <laughs> you know, I feel like I, I dread waking up to like the 20 New York Times push yeah. notifications every day of like, you know, who did what. And so, you know, for me, I think it's been a, a little bit of a retreat from nonfiction and back into some sort of fictional classics. Very cool. And, you know, I think what's fun is both fun and fascinating is you go back and you read some, you know, I, I just finished a book by uh, by William Faulkner uh, sort oh, of awesome. set in sort of like post post sort of a Civil War America. And it's amazing because you read a book like that and you're like, well, what, what could that possibly tell you about America today? And what's fascinating is 
you know, if that book was about modern era, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Right. Right. In terms of some of the side of societal struggles and you know, some of the tropes you see there. And so a lot of the culture is is the same. Unfortunately, it, feel, it, it feels that way. Yeah, yeah. You know, history, you know, doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. And so I think what's you know refreshing for me is to sometimes take a step back, go and read some of these sort of classics and remind yourself that, you know, yes, you can get caught up in this hype cycle of what's happening today. And you sure. know, we live in a uniquely terrible, dysfunctional time. But it, it's a helpful reminder that not really. Actually, things are right. sort of better than they've ever been. And the problems we have are no worse or different than we've ever had. Yeah. And I think, you know, what's nice about a book is it's a you get engaged at your own pace on like a push notification. Yeah. Right? Uh, and it's it's cut off from uh, culture and influence. And it, sometimes, you know, editors will get their hands on it or, you know, a group will like change the message of the book. But generally, I think the author's message um can be intact or in, in the case of some authors, right, they can have the uh, exoteric meaning of the book and then they can have esoteric meanings. Um, so I don't know if you're a fan, fan of Leo Strauss, but he was a philosopher that kind of proposed this idea that the most uh, interesting or valuable or dangerous truths of our time are always hidden in fiction because mm-hmm. um, it's the only safe place for uh, an author or a per- person of like modest means to get their message out there and then stay alive. <laughs> right. <laughs> in, in a sense. Um, so I'm curious, like, you know, maybe you haven't read a book that's like, you know, where you're obsessed with the, you know, the esoteric meaning or whatever, but are there any books like fiction, especially that have really, you would say like changed your life or the trajectory of your business? Oh, that's an interesting question. You know, on a, I guess a personal note, there's a book I, I read that I feel like had a deep personal impact. Uh, it was Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse. And I feel like uh, it revealed a lot to me about sort of myself Sure. Uh, and it's a book that I kind of re- uh, I recommend to people all the time. And I, I sort of I refer back to passages of it frequently in terms of the business. You know, I think there is you know a, a lot of good work out there in terms of, you know, particularly thinking about kind of blue ocean strategies and how do you how do you kind of create a new market? Sure. Yeah. As opposed to try and sort of compete for market share in a, in a sort of tightly established sort of incumbent right. uh, controlled market. And I think that's been sort of fascinating in terms of where we think about, hey, as we think about new products new features, how do you sort of avoid sort of getting into those sort of, you right. know, red water markets and, and stay in sort of blue water type territory? So how do, how are you thinking about avoiding that? And how are you thinking about like finding the maybe undiscovered blue oceans out there? You know, a lot of it is spending time with customers to understand what their problems are and how do those evolve as they go to cloud? Because I think if you go and try and understand, hey, what are your problems you have on premise? In some sense, those are problems that they've had right. for, you know, years, decades, right? And so great for all of them, they probably have a solution already. And yes, they have problems with all of them. So you can go in and say, hey, tell me about this problem. What don't you like? And you can start to build a product management practice and say, hey, we're going to target that thing. But ultimately, you're going to go into an established market where every customer has already bought a thing and you're sure. fighting an incumbent. And so that's painful. Versus in a cloud world, it's much more, hey, we're taking these net new applications, net new workloads out there. We don't have good answers to these things. We don't want to buy from our incumbent, you know, technology vendor. We want something new that that solves it in a better way. And I think that's a much more interesting opportunity for us. Definitely. And so I think for us, it's a lot of time with customers discovery in terms of like, great, there's a set of problems we solve today, but what's the adjacent set of problems that we don't yet solve? So one of the trends in the global 2000 or global 100, however you want to call it, or cloud 100, is this uh, phenomenon where a couple of different companies will come together and kind of pool their brand budgets or things like that. So you see like Slack, Okta, and Zoom, I think, recently kind of teamed up. I think I'm missing one company in there, but you kind of get what I'm saying, mm-hmm. right? Do you see smaller companies like this that maybe are your customers or prospects in the space? Do you see them kind of like banding t- together to go against the so-called monopolies out there? Are you are you seeing this as well? 
That's interesting. Um, off the top of my head. I mean, it's not like directly combative or anything, but you do see them kind of like forming alliances to compete against like G Suite or something like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think yes and no. I mean, I think where we see it more often is in the ISV ecosystem of other technology partners sort of working together. Because I think what a lot of companies do well is understand and say, hey, here's the sort of bounds of what my product solves and doesn't solve. Sure. Who are the people who are next to me adjacent where there's a logical kind of go to market energy? Right. And we try and do this pretty actively. Right. We work with, you know, 100 plus technology partners and say, hey, great console maybe solves one set of your networking partners. But how do we partner with F5 or Palo Alto Networks or, you know, smaller technology vendors in terms of saying, here's a better together story. Right. right. And this way we can kind of work together on, on sort of solving a customer problem. So I think you see that fairly often in terms of end customers working together. You know, I don't know if I see that as often, if only because the companies we work with are large global 2000s and oftentimes there's actually you know, regulatory reasons they can't talk to each other without that becoming <laughs> definitely yeah you know sort of an antitrust situation sure and when you you know look back at the early days of the business I'm, I'm curious you know do you have any advice for founders or founding teams now um, that you think is super important like lessons that you learned the hard way or uh, any way that folks out there that are founding a company can avoid pain? Yeah, I mean, I'd say there's probably, when I look back on, on like, what were the things I wish we had done differently? In some sense, those are to me other are learning lessons, which is one of them was answering that question of who our customer is way earlier, right? I think that was a, not knowing that until three, four years into the business, I think was quite painful. If only because there was a lot of product investments we probably wouldn't have made. There were certain hires we probably wouldn't have made, right? We would have probably made investments in our go-to-market earlier and differently had we known the answer to that question. So I think more than just having a product vision, I think it's important to early on understand at least, and you can evolve it, but at least having an answer to the question of like, Sure. Who is yeah. my customer? Right. Right. Like you can always is, iterate that once yeah. you once you get it. Yeah, you can always change it if you're wrong, but I think not having it at all uh is tough. Right. And I think that's the position we were in. I think the other thing that served us well is being sort of ruthlessly pragmatic. <laughs> <laughs> right. Which is I think you have to acknowledge that it's not a sprint. It's not about, hey, I just gotta survive this quarter and then we're at the finish line. It's like, no, there's there's sort of many, no end. Many more. <laughs> yeah, to the journey. Yeah. And so I think you have to be super pragmatic and say, what's working? Great, let's double down. What's not working? Should we, you know, pivot the strategy or should we kill that effort entirely? Right. And I think for us early on, there was, you know, a number of products where we killed. Mm-hmm. There was a number of products where we said, you know what, it's not quite working. Let's reboot it and think about sort of a 2.0 vision of how to solve the same problem. And I think that pragmatism served us well because we didn't waste a lot of time going down a road that, you know, we thought or knew would fail and right. so like, let's yeah. cut our losses and try something else right and iterate iterate until something sticks and do you feel like that uh helped inform the company culture you have today just you know re- revisiting that lesson maybe you know so it's funny we publicly publish both what we call the tau of hashicorp which is sort of our design ethos behind the product i like the name uh, yeah, and then the, the principles of hashicorp which yeah. are more sort of people oriented and how to what's the culture of the company and it's funny that the only thing that exists on both the the Tao and the principles is pragmatism, (laughs) right? And so I'd say, you know, we're almost pragmatic to a fault uh, culturally, but I think it serves us well, right? Which is particularly in enterprise, particularly in sort of the sort of uh, the ecosystem we're in, you have to be, right? You cannot be dogmatic and dictate to the customer, hey, here's what you should do because they'll tell you to get lost. No, yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely not. And I think what's interesting too, so in the beginning, I would kind of fight that when we were... Uh, pitching a client uh, custom podcast and I would want to like really wrestle with like the creative decisions. And as I learned to kind of like let go and just like accept the directions that they wanted to go and kind of take their advice and accept 
oh, I don't know it, everything. That's when I think the learning started, right? Where I started to learn more and we had better partnerships and better relationships. Uh, but it can be so hard in the beginning when you have the domain expertise and you know, you're trying to, to lobby a customer to go in a certain direction. Any tips on building that working relationship, right? And um, becoming a better listener with your customers? So I think what we've learned over time, and particularly in in sort of the enterprise segment, is trust is everything. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, I it's it's true that probably the first thousand users of our tools, I probably knew by name and had met personally. The first hundred customers, probably the same thing. And so I think what's so important is that you establish trust as a foundation of a long-term relationship. I think if you treat it as a transactional thing where I'm here to get you to buy this thing and then we're, this transaction is complete. It's very hard, right? You're not going to yeah. learn from it. You're not going to you're not going to engage with the customer in the right way. So I think if you think about it as what I'm trying to do is build a long-term relationship where you know, we have a trusted view where you know what? Sometimes I want them I want to be able to tell the customer they're doing the wrong thing mm-hmm. or hey, they should do this in a different way, right? Uh, because we have the experience and what we've seen is it works out better that way. But before you can do that, you have to earn their trust. Yeah, which takes a while and you have to know where you're at in the relationship, right? Exactly. Yeah. So you have to show your value and I think you can't come in guns blazing saying, hey, you're doing it wrong. Sure. Do it this other way. Yeah. You say, okay, let me let me sort of understand where you're at. Let me understand your problems. Let me add value to where you are today. Right. Prove to you that I actually genuinely care and want you to be successful. And then as we get to sort of points in the future where I can provide domain expertise and nudge you in a different way, I want to do that in a respectful way, right? right? But you have to earn the right to do it. Definitely. Wise words. And so for me, when I hear that, I, I know that's the right answer. Um, but in my head, I'm thinking like, okay, that's going to mean more servicing costs and, and things of that nature. You know, How do you think about services? And at, at what point do you, um, you know, initially, I'm sure you invest heavily in the relationship. And as it goes on, maybe that changes, maybe that evolves. How are you thinking about services and customer success? Yeah, good question. So I think our it's evolved quite a bit, right? In the early days, we really strictly didn't want to be a services business at all. We wanted to be a pure technology company. And so our stance was, we will have an SI ecosystem that we partner with, and we will sort of do the matchmaking of, hey, customer, meet local SI. Sure. But we won't do services. I think what's become obvious to us is, you know, it goes back to that notion of uh, what we talked about, the challenge of procurement and legal departments in these enterprises is- <laughs> definitely. It's painful when you tell the customer, hey, we just spent eight months going through your legal, and now you need to spend another eight months going to legal with this SI partner so they can do your services, right? And the customer's like, no way. Like, why don't we just do this on the paper we just agreed with? You guys be my services provider. And so I think what's happened over the last few years is we've acknowledged the, you know, pragmatically the reality of even though we don't want to be a services company, we have to do services, right? Right. To make our customers successful. And so again, we don't, because we don't want to do it, what we've ultimately done is build out sort of a virtual bench where the partners oh, engage awesome. on our paper, we sort of train them and certify them, but then we'll engage the customer, right, through our kind of commercial contracts and then bring in the SI partners through that. So that's super smart. Yeah. It's a sort of a happy ecosystem of we get to be a pure technology company, our SI partners get to engage with us and there's sort of a healthy alignment there. And the customers, it's easier for them to engage with one customer or one partner instead of multiple. It sounds like it. Yeah. So when a customer or prospect reaches out, is it usually like the CEO, the CTO, the CIO, uh, who usually reaches out? So what's interesting is because the tools are all open source, we have a very bottom-up adoption model, gotcha. right? So yeah. it actually usually starts at the bottom of an organization. Usually, you know, almost every customer that we engage with has been a user of the open source before they ever talk to us, right? So they start using the tools, they see the value, they see how it solves their problem. And then it's someone usually mid-level, director, senior director, reaching out to say, hey, you know, we're at a point where we want a commercial relationship, we want support, we want commercial features, et cetera. 
And then from there, the kind of conversation escalates up to, you know, usually a CIO or CTO, SVP maybe of technology. And that's usually where the, the relationship sits. But it starts very much in sort of the bottom or middle of the org and works its way up. Gotcha. And I'm curious, what's going on on the East Coast right now? What's, uh, what's exciting in Connecticut? And um, yeah, what are you up to up there? <laughs> you know, given my role, I joke that I weekend in Connecticut. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I spend a ton of time just on the road meeting with customers and, 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 and meeting with partners. So, you know, like I, 80% I, of your time or how much are you on the road? These uh, days? 80 to 100. Wow. Yeah. So it's a pretty wow. high ratio. Yeah. yeah. So it's only half a joke. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's an intense schedule. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I will say the changing of the leaves is happening right <laughs> as we speak. And it is beautiful right now. It is. Uh, any tips when you're traveling that much? Any supplements? Any Anything you're doing for better sleep, better productivity? Anything? Ooh, that's a good question. You know, it's one of these things where it's like for many years, I resisted the notion of airline loyalty, right? I was just like, a, you know, book the cheapest flight. You know, I, I had no, no loyalty or allegiance. It's been one of those things that actually has been helpful, right? If only because there's always flight delays. There's always something that goes wrong. And yeah. when you're just slightly in the sort of more, uh, you know, higher status rungs, they take better care of you. They're like, right, okay, we'll get you rerouted. We'll deal with it. Where it's like, yeah. If they're... You know, if you're too much of an economy flyer yeah. and you have no allegiance at all, it's just like then they're just like, right? you know, get back to the line, back of the line, right? Type yeah. of a thing. So that's actually made a, a substantial, if unexpected, improvement. <laughs> Very cool. And uh, when it comes to life outside of work, any hobbies, any passions, or anything you do to recharge? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, spending as little time on sort of an electronic device <laughs> as the way I, I, I recharge. So you know, getting out into nature, being able to go on a hike, go on a walk. Uh, doing yoga has been sort of uh, huge for me in terms of just being able to like quiet the mind for an hour at a time. Definitely, yeah. Uh, reading fiction as a nice escape of sort of the news cycle and, and yeah. sort of all the nonfiction that we read all the time for our work. so much healthier than news and uh, <laughs> nonfiction at a certain point. Uh, Armin, this has been a really great interview. Thank you so much for being generous with your time. Uh, is there anything that you would like to leave our listeners with or anyone that's still listening out there? Any final message, thought, or call to action? You know, thinking about it, uh, you know, I think one of the things that sort of bothers me all the time is you talk to a lot of founders who sort of struggle to think about startup ideas, right? Mm -hmm. And there's this sort of like brainstorming of like, hey, what's this next hot thing? And I think often what you see is people sort of attaching to a hype cycle of, hey, there's a bunch of stuff happening and whatever crypto, we should do a crypto related thing. Um, and I think what's sort of frustrating is when you really engage with, whether it's an SMB business, whether it's an enterprise, and you really just sit down and ask someone like, tell me what your problems are. Sure. What you'll find is that there's no shortage, right? <laughs> right? There's no, it's very rare that you're going to talk to an organization that says, we figured everything out. We're good. Thanks. Yeah. Right. Like it's just not the case. So, you know, I feel like oftentimes there's this over-focus on sort of idea origination when really I think a lot of the value is in sort of curation, right? It's going out right. and understanding what is the problems? How do we think about a better way of solving it? Right? How do we package up a nice solution to this thing? Right. And that's, I think, much more effective than trying to sort of originate a thing that maybe ha no one has that problem. <laughs> well, that, that's where the arbitrage is logically going to be, where it's like de there's demonstrated arbitrage there as opposed to a hype cycle where it's already going to be priced in or at, at, at best, it's already going to be priced in. At worst, you're going to get fleeced. <laughs> right, exactly. So, and there's uh, just no shortage of those types of problems. <laughs> definitely. And um, oh, I forgot to ask you too. Uh, I'm sure you guys are recruiting right now. You just mentioned that you onboarded 72 people the other day. Right. Uh, what key positions are you hiring for right now or what roles are you looking to fill? Oh my God, uh, everything. I mean, we're hiring and you know, the three kind of big buckets for us are sort of sales, customer success and engineering, right? So it's, you know, everything from salespeople and 
sales engineering to customer success and support people to product and and engineering resources. Uh, so it's it's really everything. <laughs> Very cool. And uh, people can find out more at HashiCorp.com. Yep, HashiCorp.com. And if they're interested in looking at jobs, it's HashiCorp.com slash jobs. Perfect. Go check it out. And to everyone listening, we will see you next time. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera, who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.